This time of year is especially fun because it gives us the opportunity not just to open our Bibles and to to look into it, but to really consider what is the central issue, the, the, the main part of the story, the climax of the story that we find in the Bible. We're looking at the question of who is Jesus, and that is the most important question that we can answer from our Bibles. That's what the Bible is designed to tell us best. It tells us things about our lives, things about how to get along with each other, things about how to, how to honor God in our regular activities, but the question that it answers most and best is the question, who is Jesus? Because it's in knowing the answer to that question that we find wisdom and insight into all of the others, how our lives should be shaped and organized, what it is to worship him, what it is to love other people. But if we don't get this first and most important question right about who is Jesus, we'll mess it up in all of the other questions. And Christmas is a time where all of us turn our attention in some way to this person. People are talking about him. I hear songs on the background when I'm out at stores shopping and his name is out there and who is he? Well, one of the realities is we can describe him in so many different ways. And so if you just look at the front of your handout, what it is is all of the different words that the Bible uses to describe this person and to answer this question. And he's not just one of these things, he is all of these things. All of these words are descriptive of who Jesus is. When he was here on this earth, how he described himself or how scripture before he came described him and and predicted him and prophesied who this person was that was going to come And we don't have time to unpack all of these things, but they are worthy of your reflection to consider that this person that we're celebrating is absolutely unique. There is something special about his life. And all of us, wherever we've come from today, mark our own days today by his birth. We say that we're in the 2012th year of our Lord. We don't know exactly which year he was born, but we know that his birth was so significant that all of human history is defined as being before he was born or after he was born. That's huge. Everybody throughout this world is marking their day in their calendar in relation to his birth. And so the question, well, who is he? There's a lot of people born. So why is it that because of him, so much changes. Now we can't go into all of it and so we're gonna focus our attention on Hebrews chapter 12 and so if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it. You'll find it on page 1008 if you're using one of the Bibles that's provided there for you in a pew. Hebrews chapter 12 on page 1008. It'll begin with this description of what Jesus has done for us. Then it'll talk about how that affects our own lives, and then it'll end with a description of how powerful and secure and sure what Jesus is and has done for us. So Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping heads and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That'll conclude our reading this morning. So who is Jesus? The first thing that our text says is that he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. 
Now, the word perfect in the Bible doesn't mean what it always, uh, how we use it anymore today. It doesn't mean purity in and of itself. It actually has the idea behind it of completeness. So when it says that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter, it's a way of saying he is the beginner and the finisher. He gets it started, he completes it. He's there when it kicks off, and he's there to make sure it all gets wrapped up nicely. He sees our faith all the way through. And so in our just sort of everyday speech, if you're talking about the basics of something, you might say, oh, we're just going over the ABCs of this. You're like, oh, okay, the very basics of it. But what this is saying is it's not the ABCs of our faith, it's the A through Z of our faith. It's everything. He's there in the beginning, the middle, and the end. He is our faith's founder and our faith's perfecter. He's everything that we're talking about. In other words, we don't have another message to give you if you say, okay, Jesus is interesting to me, but what else do you have? We don't. We have nothing else to talk about, to sing about, to Uh, to ask you to consider about than Jesus himself. If you look into his life and you examine his ministry and you say, I am looking for something else, then you'll have to look somewhere else because Jesus is the one that we proclaim as the beginning, middle, and end, the A through Z of our faith, his life and his ministry. And so when we then look at his life, what we get in this short summary in the first two verses is that what we need to do is look at the entirety of his ministry. Not just look at the beginning of his ministry, not just at the middle or the end, but that it all goes together. And we can't understand any of the individual parts unless we understand how they fit together. And so this is a time of year where we celebrate specifically his birth. But the significance of his birth we know because he did more than just be born. If all he did was experience life, then he's one of now seven billion of us on the planet. That's not unique that he was born. So there's something else. It is wonderful, just like it is always an amazing wonder any time a life is born. And you look at a small child and you just realize how fragile life is. Like, oh my goodness. It, it is amazing every time, but his birth has significance beyond the fact that he simply came. And we see right, right away in verse two what that significance is. It says, look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. This child who was born, whom angels sang and celebrated his birth, experienced at the end of his life the pain of a cross. Okay, again, what, what, why? Why did this Jesus, who it seems that people were excited about, that he came into the world, that we now are excited about and sing about and celebrate, why would he end up on a cross? A cross in that day and age was the punishment that somebody received for a crime. Okay, so we're celebrating this, right? He was born, but then he died like a criminal. What? I don't, did he do something wrong? Why would we celebrate 
that if, if what he did was get punished for something that he did wrong? Well, no, he didn't do anything wrong. The Bible tells us, and Hebrews has told us all throughout, that he was without sin. Well, okay. So this is like a tragedy, right? He was somebody who shouldn't have died that died. Well, yeah. But then why do you celebrate it? That's a, that's a good question. Because we don't usually celebrate tragedies. We don't celebrate when something that shouldn't have happened happens. But we are, in fact, celebrating and and what we find out is that Jesus actually knew from the beginning that this was his end. It says, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He wasn't surprised by the suffering. He knew exactly the future that awaited him. And so when he chose to be born, in that choice, he was choosing also exactly how he was going to die. Because the purpose of his death The purpose of his life was to experience specifically this punishment. So that, but why? Why is that something worthy of celebrating? And what we find as we go throughout is not only Hebrews tells us, but all of the Bible tells us that he was doing something for other people. That the joy that was before him and the reason he was willing to endure the cross is because by doing that, he makes available and possible freedom and forgiveness for others. He was willing to experience the pain and the suffering of the cross because by it, he can offer then freedom and forgiveness to all of us. So he was willing to go through something so that you and I don't have to. That's what he was willing to do. That's the the nature of the gift that he was willing to give. But another reason that we celebrate it is that that's not where the story ends. It's not even where the verse ends. If you look, it says, so he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. The cross, in all of its horror, was not the end for Jesus. And all those who were following him and who were weeping and just could not make sense of how this innocent person had died, the New Testament tells us three days later saw him again. And they realized that all of this pain, all of this suffering that he had gone through could not keep him down. That he actually rose again. That he was victorious over the suffering. That he was victorious over the pain. And they could see him and say, well, wait a minute. There you are. You're not still in pain. No, I'm not. You're not dead. I'm not dreaming. No, you're not. Here I am. And now he is seated at the Father. So we can only celebrate it if, if that actually happened. If he didn't rise again and he only died an unjust death, then it is a tragedy and something that we would get together to remember maybe but definitely not something we would celebrate. We can celebrate it because he rose again, because he showed us definitively that sin and evil, death and darkness will not win and will not have the final say. And because he knew that, that joy that was set before him, that he would be able to demonstrate to all of us his power over the grave, he endured for the moment 
the suffering of the cross. And so he is our faith's founder and perfecter because he is sin's conqueror and destroyer. Jesus knew what sin was. He saw it in all of its fullness. He didn't choose just to stay removed from the world, kind of looking at it at 30,000 feet. I don't know if you've been on an airplane and looked at the world from 30,000 feet. But when you just, when every car all of a sudden becomes small and looks like a matchbox car, and every house, you can't hear any noise anymore from it. You just get the sense that everything's peaceful, right? Because you can't hear who's fighting inside the house anymore. If somebody's honking their horn at somebody in anger, you don't hear it anymore. You just, you're up there, and it just looks peaceful. Jesus, in coming to this world, saying, I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to look at this from 30,000 feet. I'm going to be right here. I'm going to see sin in all of its ugliness. I'm going to see pain and see suffering, and I will endure it against myself. He knows exactly what sin is, and that's what verse 3 tells us. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. He had a front row seat to the brokenness, the pain, and the suffering that we all experience. What he did not, however, do and experience was actually sinning himself. You see, he actually, in some ways, experienced sin even stronger than we do because he never gave in to it. When you're in a battle against somebody, the, the faster you lose, the faster you slip up and the other person wins, it's over. But the more you resist and the more you push back, then they have to keep trying harder and harder because you're not giving in and you're not stopping and you're not letting them bring you down. And it took, therefore, everything on the part of the enemy to come against our Savior, to show him sin in ways that you and I have not felt the weight of because we often slip, we often give in, we often become a participant in it. And so we don't even really have a sense of the fullness of its power. But Jesus, never giving in, experienced sin in all of its fullness. But he was himself without sin. And what this tells us now is not only did he endure it, but he wants us to run with endurance. The very beginning of the chapter, it said, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He who was able to endure to not give in, to not resist, and by doing that, offer us forgiveness from our sin, is now saying to each and every one of us, okay, in all your struggling with it, just let go of it. Let go of your sin and look to me. We, we get this backwards. We're more likely to look at our sin and let go of Jesus. We're more likely to just spend time feeling guilty and filled with bitterness and regret and just stare and look at our sin and let go of Jesus. But he's saying, don't do that. Look at me. Look up here and let go of that. You don't have to be bound by that anymore. You don't have to be manipulated by that anymore. 
I have a, a whole new appreciation for just what it takes to look. Because I'm regularly now dealing with somebody who just can't look. A, a very, very young child who just, his eyes are everywhere, but where you want his eyes to be. If, if, if you could just look, you, you would see that what you want is about to come. But you're not, you're not able to look at it. You're not focusing on it. You're just, all you're doing is crying out in your own frustration, in your own anger, saying, this is what I want. If you just stop crying, open, look, you'll see it's there. But so many times we're like that. We, we can't get our eyes on the right thing. We can't look and focus on the truth and the promise of who Jesus is and we're more likely to look at our sin, to look at the sin of other people and to focus so much on that. And in so doing, we let go of all of the promises that Jesus has for us. But not only has he endured from sinners, he, he wants us to run with endurance in the way it's described later in verse 10 is that he is doing all of this because he wants us to share his holiness. He wants us to experience what it's like to be like him, to love like him, to minister like him. And so when we examine his life, the beginning, the middle, and the end, and and we see the love that was behind it, the compassion that was there, the joy that was there, he wants us to share in that to share in that holiness, to share in that joy, to share in all of that goodness so that we would know that sin has been conquered and it will be destroyed. And our, our Savior is able to punish the sin and to remove the sin, but keep us. And we know that in our own day that, that it is possible for us to suffer from diseases in critical parts of our body that we say, there's nothing we can do because you need that part. And that part is exactly what's failing. And the Bible says we have a surgeon who can get through in all the precision that is necessary to remove the sin, to remove the stain, to remove the punishment, but to keep us going in the process so that we actually, we're still there and we're more whole than we've ever been, more human than we've ever been. And so we know him as sin's conqueror and destroyer and also as life's giver and sustainer. He can do both of these things. He can remove what's destroying us and then he can give us life. If you look at verse nine, it describes him and it says, as it's talking about discipline and how for none of us discipline in the moment is fun, but it eventually yields a fruit. It says, look, if we've even benefited in any way from the discipline of adults in our life, whether it was from a mother, a father, aunt, or uncle, and we've experienced some kind of discipline that we've benefited from, he's saying, look, how much more if we submit to the discipline of our heavenly father, i.e. someone who's perfect, someone whose discipline will never become abusive, Someone whose discipline will never be misinformed and we're just getting in trouble for what somebody else did. No, no, no. This is somebody who knows everything and who in his discipline is doing it for love. He says, if, if we're subject to that, shall we not, he puts it rhetorically, shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? And then he describes this in a, in a very... Uh, for me, just a, a fun and exciting way in, in verses 12 and on. That 
we celebrate this birth of Jesus into the world and his ministry because what he is then trying to do through that is to give us life. Look at what he says in verse 12. So lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make the path of your feet straight. It is God's desire and will and purpose for you and for me that we be strengthened, that we experience life in all of its fullness, that we not be overcome by sin and guilt and regret, but through him and through what he's done for us, that we actually experience new life. And that's what's unique about his birth, that he was born and lived and died in such a way that he also gives life to people. He can give life to each and every one of us that we can experience the kind of strength that he here says, look, that we'd be able to strive with for peace with everyone, that we'd be able to remain pure in all of our relationships. This is his desire for us, not just to rescue us, but to restore us and to make us whole again. Those are two different things, redeeming and restoring. If you redeem something, what that means is that you simply, you buy back, you take possession again of something that was once yours. So if you were to go from here and you were to say, you know, there was a house that you lived in for some point in your, in your childhood and just means everything to you and whoever has it now is just let it go and so you want to redeem it. What that means is you'll buy it back. You'll secure the rights and you'll take it over again. Well, simply getting it back doesn't mean the thing's restored. But you don't start restoring it until you've redeemed it. You don't start working on it while it still belongs to somebody else, they might just say, thanks for fixing this up. We'll now enjoy it. And what God is doing in the gospel is both of those things. He redeems us, he buys us back, takes back possession, so that sin is no longer doing its decaying and destroying work in us, but then he restores us. He brings us back to where we know in our own hearts and minds we should be. excuse me, and then the last part, if you'll look at verse 24, this is what he says about who Jesus is. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You might not be very familiar with your Bible, but still have heard about a story at the very beginning about two brothers, Cain and Abel. The first recorded murder that we have in our Bibles, where one brother, jealous of the other, took his life. And it says in that passage in Genesis, God comes to Cain, who had committed the crime, and says, the blood of Abel is crying out. And so the crying out there is, Something wrong has happened. There was innocent blood that was shed that is crying out for justice. That's crying out that this wrong be made right. Now Jesus also suffered an unjust death. But the crying out that goes forth from his blood, Hebrews 12 says, is a better word than what it was that Abel's blood cried out. And what is the better word? Well, instead of saying, crying out, go get those who've done this to me. 
Find them. Find out who did this. The blood of our Savior cries out, forgiveness for those who've done this to me. Freedom for those who are so entrapped by sin that they would do this to me. It cries out. It has demands. But what it cries out for is the salvation of all of us who are lost. Go get them. Go bring them back into the family. Go bring them back into the fold. Go gather all those who are so focused looking at their sin and letting go of me and show them who I am. Show them what I've done. Show them the gift that I have offered to them. And it's a gift that's so secure that all around that verse in section 18 through 29 before it and after it, he's describing this unshakable kingdom, this gift that's offered that once you take it and receive it, no one can ever take it from you. No one can ever change it. It's done and it's finished. It's there. It's pure. What was begun is complete. It's everything you need is in it. It's not this great gift that you get sometimes and then you find out, oh, the batteries aren't included and I can't enjoy this until I get something else. Everything is there that you need and his blood cries out a better word, forgiveness, freedom, salvation, hope, joy, new life. That's what it cries out and so that is why we sing and that is why we celebrate. And rather than thinking of it as this horrible tragedy of innocence that was lost, like someone who is right now in a hospital and just hoping for a transfusion so that they can continue to live, we need a transfusion. And he's saying, I have enough. I can give through my blood life to you so that you can live forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We thank you as we come to you and celebrate your birth, as we celebrate the significance of your life, that you are the one who was born on a holy night, but that you were born that we no more would have to die, that in all your power and all your wonder that we wouldn't have to fear it, but that we could be excited about the future that you have for us. We ask that you would help us even as we now sing to really consider the question of who you are and why you are so worth celebrating, worth memorizing the scriptures to keep them in our mind, worth presenting in programs to our kids and teaching them about you. As our whole world marks its calendar by your birth. We want through our lives to celebrate, through our actions, through our attitudes, and through our faith, the greatness and the wonder of who you are and all that you've done. And so we pray that through your spirit you would convict us each and every one. In your name we pray, amen.